This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. And I'm David Merrill. Today we've got an exciting show to talk about one of the cool places you've been. We do have a really exciting show. Kodiak Island. Kodiak Island is a cruel mistress, Patrick. <laughs> I have been twice in the last, what, 12 months. Well, actually 11 months. So, Because we were up there for 20 days last August. And we have a epic film coming in probably a month. I'm going to go see Joe Bartlett this weekend, and he's going to have a preliminary director's cut kind of nice first edition mm-hmm. ready. And I'm going to give him some some critiques, and then we'll uh, launch a film, and we're going to have a huge prize giveaway. So it's uh, it's exciting times at Bow Spiders for sure. But I was there, and we went back. <laughs> it mm-hmm. must not have been that bad, huh? If I went back, yeah, and Kodiak Island. Everybody that's listening to this probably has some idea in their mind when they hear the word Kodiak. You either think of the bear, you think of the island itself. Typically, people think of bear hunting. I think of the pancakes. Yeah, Kodiak Kodiak pancakes. pancakes. Those are good, by the way. They don't sponsor the show, but they are good. Um, But, you know, when I was a kid growing up reading Outdoor Life, Jim Zumbo articles, all those things, you always thought about the big Kodiak bear and just how huge a 10 foot bear is, you know, nine, 10 foot bear. And I remember as a kid thinking, I don't want to go to that place because those bears freak me out, but you got to go and you got to go on a Kodiak hunt. And so we're going to take that journey with you here today and just talk about what it was like going to Kodiak, what the conditions were like, what the bears were like, all the things talk about the winds the losses, the successes, the failures, all of it, and just kind of get your perspective on it. So talk about how this hunt even came to be. What what was it that even made this thing happen? Everybody should know by now that I ride on my father's coattails pretty good because he's the resident up there. He actually drew a spring Kodiak bear tag, and spring is night and day different from fall. So I've been both times now, and I've uh, only been to the island twice, always wanted to go. Even when I lived there, I lived... In Kenai, which is, you know, a 10-minute flight away, I lived there for five years. I never made it out to Kodiak. There was enough to do on the Kenai Peninsula. I just right. didn't feel the desire drive. I applied for a tag every year, but they're, they're highly coveted, limited tags to get a Kodiak brown bear tag in your pocket. So when we figured out my dad drew, and that was early spring, and we'd just done the trip, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm coming back. And there was a lot of trepidation hesitation about you know we got our butts kicked hard enough goat hunting on kodiak and i was wet and cold enough that it this place is i, I opened this saying kodiak's a cruel mistress <laughs> it's uh well i remember you talking about the last kodiak trip falling in a hole and just some of the pains and aches and some of the things that came from that trip because i remember you came back and you were stove up pretty good from that one because it's pretty brutal it was so night and day difference from fall to spring in the fall the ferns are chest high and you can't, there's so much foliage on the alders, you cannot, the devil's club, the ferns, the grass, and the alders are, it's it's a jungle. It's only 15 feet tall. There's yeah. nothing else taller on the island, at least the, the south part we were on. But you can't, for the first day, 
you can't see more than five feet in front of your face. And there was times we were hiking almost this far apart and the person in front of you just disappeared gone yeah and you'd hear you'd hear kind of muffled there's a hole down here <laughs> and you've got a 50 60 sometimes 100 pound backpack on it's not really easy conducive to getting back up so like i said night and day difference spring all that foliage is dead it's been crushed under five feet of snow all year the leaves are all gone you can see you can see when you're stepping up and down i mean it's <laughs> it's kind of like a rolling mogul carpet you know, if you've ever been skiing, you've been in the moguls, right? Mm -hmm. Think of trying to hike across that with head high brush. You, you never know if you're stepping two feet down or a foot and a half up. So we all fell dozens of times on Kodiak and it just was part of the adventure on the, on the first August goat trip. This time I don't think I fell. That's I awesome. don't remember falling down one time because you could see every step and you could you can navigate around because we were just going right through the alders. And when you go through those alders, they grow at such a sweeping angle that when you go to pick, you'll, you'll get your left foot over it. You go to pick your right foot up and there's a branch between your legs that you can't see. And boom, you ought, it's, it's just like if somebody's riding a bicycle and you threw a broom handle through their bike, that's, that's what you're doing, but you don't know that it's coming. And mm -hmm. so, uh, it just started off with dad drew the tag and dad's like, I don't know if I'm going to go. I'm like, you're going. It's like, I don't know if <laughs> I'm crazy. Just, I might you're going. Yeah. I'm crazy. You're going. So a, a good dear friend of mine, Lance Postma, he owns a top of Utah archery. He uh, volunteered to go with my dad for the first week. And I talked to him like, it doesn't make sense for you and I to go for a week together with dad and then him just be there a week on his own. So we kind of drew straws a little bit. What happened is I had a trade show. So Lance cleared his schedule, closed his shop and went and spent a week with my dad chasing bears. And they got on a couple bears and I, it was, it was eating me up to be texting back and <laughs> forth with them and, you know, calling yeah. them. And they're like, Oh, we're here and we're there. And I'm like, have you seen bears? You've got on bears. I was struggling working. I was at a total archery challenge in Oklahoma. So I was working, drove to Oklahoma with my gear to go to Kodiak did the total archery challenge and flew out of, I think it was Tennessee or Indianapolis, flew out of Indy. That's where my, where I could get a flight out of, flew right up to Kodiak. So I didn't even come home first. I left, went, did that trade show, left the uh, bow spider suburban on that side of the country and flew up there the day after Lance flew back home. So my dad had to hang around for a day to pick me up right into the hunt. My bag didn't make it. My transfer in Chicago. And I walked up to the ticket agent transferring from united to alaskan air and i i will say alaskan air does a great job that other company on the hand i every time i've flown with them i've had some sort of issue they canceled my flight to johannesburg you know mm -hmm. two years ago for cape buffalo hunting 12 hours before the flight <laughs> yeah i remember that so i've had nothing but problems unfortunately that's the air carrier that flies into our little podunk town so yeah. why do i fly with them they're the only choice <laughs> so anyways um I have no bag. And I walked up to the gate agent during when the tight connection, I said, Hey, you know, I don't think my, Oh, she said, don't worry. I'm like, next time I'm going to pull the little thing. I'm like, no, you scan this. If this bag isn't getting on the plane, neither am I. I'll show up a day late. But I showed up to Kodiak with no rain gear, no sleeping bag. You know, I had the jeans I was wearing, borrowed a raincoat from my dad. And we actually, the next day got on a bear waiting for my bag and it was pretty cool. We almost, almost were successful right out of the gate. So, um, the, you know, the winter we had here. Yeah. That's the winter they had in Alaska. A brutal one, huh? 
beyond <laughs> brutal. And so spring was about two weeks late, which means the green shoots were about two weeks late. So the bears were pretty lethargic. Yeah. Talk about spring bears and kind of what that dynamic looks like trying to hunt them in the springtime. Like they're coming out of hibernation. What are they looking for? Where are you looking for these bears? So as most people know, bears are one of the few species that hibernates. There's some others, but as far as large predatory carnivore, they're the only one. And so bears are in that aspect, getting into their headspace in the fall, they're really keyed into food, mm-hmm. right? They, but they only want high caloric intake food in the fall. They will walk past medium to low caloric take in food to get a elk gut pile or, you know, a salmon, maybe even berries, right? But they're going to, they're going to skip grass or herbs or whatever. I mean, they'll, they'll still utilize some of those food sources. They're, they're an omnivore. They'll eat everything, but they're going to look at the smorgasbord at the table and go, where's the pie and ice cream? I'm skipping the salad. That's what they're going to do. Well, if it's between grass and salmon, salmon's going to be the choice, obviously, because of the fat content, right? Yes. To get them through the winter. So fall bear hunting and spring bear hunting are definitely different. It's almost a different critter and species in some aspects. A lot of fall bear hunting is just incidental, right? It's just, they're just kind of where they are. And so, you know, if, if it was Alaska, I'd be focusing on a salmon stream in the fall. What you're focusing on the spring is, is you can get a lot better hide off these bears because they've got their winter coat on. And typically they haven't rubbed it off yet. You're looking for bears that haven't rubbed. And you'll hear people say this on hunting videos, oh, that bear's rubbed. And what that means is, is he's rubbing his winter coat off that he just wore all winter. And he maybe has some sort, something is making him itch. I'm not quite Mm -hmm. the biologist, tell you what. But you'll see bears that have huge bald spots where they've got against a rock or a tree or something, maybe just the ground and just sat there and, rubbed back and forth. Think of a, a toddler in a crib. They always have a bald spot on the back of their head, right? <laughs> well, it's a good analogy. Yeah. It's a great one. Yep. If, uh, if you're going after this critter to, to life size mount it, you don't want a big bald spot on the side of it. That makes sense. So it, I'm, I don't want to even use the word trophy, but it definitely, if you wait too late and they've rubbed it, it kind of ruins the, the quality of the pelt, so to say. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be a little more selective when you're looking at spring bears. You guys typically don't harvest a rub bear because the pelts just, they don't look pristine and beautiful like they could. Mm-hmm. So you're a looking for that B the bears, you know, if you go early they're they're still waking up there in their dens and, and bear dens, black bear, you know, they're going to dig a root ball under a tree. They're going to go find a rock cave. They're going to find bear dens for black bear here in the lower 48 are typically a hole in the ground of some kind. There's no real places for them to dig holes and burrow, so to speak, on Kodiak. They pretty much just lay down and let the snow cover them up or they go up into, you know, a big snowy edge cliff and they'll dig a hole and they'll, they'll make a snow cave, but they are in the snow. So if you go super early, you can actually see because they're laying on the dirt, they'll come in and out of the den a little bit, checking to see if the snow's gone away. So there'll kind of be a brown streak up high in the bigger snowdrifts. They're not they're not down on the valley floor. They're usually pretty up high, and you'll see this black hole with a brown streak coming out of it. It's pretty easy to spot a bear den that the bear's been coming in and out of. So if you're super early, you're going to focus on getting them right on the dens. Once they come out, they kind of go everywhere, and they're they're like vacuum cleaners. If there's any ungulates, anything that's died, they're going to go clean that up first. Why? 
I mean, and it's, it takes them about a week or two to even get their digestive system back to, to working. So that first two weeks, I mean, think about if you went on a, a six month fast, <laughs> your, your stomach is shrunk to where you can't eat. And they actually, I will have to talk about this a little bit. Their last meal before they go in the den is a big bunch of grass to kind of plug up their system. And so their first bowel movement after the spring is usually a big plug of grass and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll go on just kind of a grass diet. They're they're mostly looking for, and they're just getting their digestive system back going again to where they can gorge themselves all summer. That's just the way they are. So as spring progresses, and it depends on time, how long they've been out of the den, and it, it's going to vary down to the individual bear because one bear might wake up two weeks later than another bear. But they definitely go through these couple little cycles of spend just a couple days stumbling around the den, not even really realizing they're they're around and and when they're actually hibernating they're not truly asleep asleep you know there's videos and pictures of biologists going in and doing bear work on a mom with cubs and they 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 do sedate the the mom in there she can she could come fully awake so they you know but for the most part they're in a pretty heavy sleep and Mm -hmm. the cubs are born in the den they wake up they're blind. They they nurse, and mom doesn't even really realize as much as this is happening until she wakes up and there's two or three little cubs running around bogging her. Right, so definitely when you're bear hunting, typically you want to go after a large boar. That's just that's a sustainable hunting. And is that the regulation in Kodiak? Is it has to be a boar? It has to be a solo bear. So you can okay. female with cubs are protected. Females without cubs are not. But the population on Kodiak, the bears are still exploding. There's a lot of bears on that island, more so than there was. I don't have a great timeline, but there was zero cattle pre-World War II on that island. The U.S. military dumped a bunch of cattle on there, and I don't know if some ranchers took them over. I don't have the exact history of it, but there's several working cattle ranches on Kodiak Island. So you now have twelve to 1,400-pound grizzly bears that see, you know, thousand pound cows walking around that there's an easy snack so there's definitely some places there's 10 12 foot woven wire fences for miles to keep the bears off the cattle ranches why bears gonna chase down a cow a lot faster than he is a a mountain goat or a deer that's a lot of protein and fat on that cow so mountain goat are not indigenous to kodiak there's several other species that were introduced they tried to introduce moose and they didn't make it they died there's plenty of willows which is a primary food source for moose there's plenty of quote-unquote habitat it's not like there's it comes down to kodiak is horribly wet and horribly cold all year long it's intriguing to me that here you've got a a moose that lives all the way up in the yukon lives all the way over to maine lives down here where we're at right they're pretty diverse they introduced them on kodiak and the the introduction didn't take on that island Mm. And there's plenty of food source. It's not a food issue. I also wonder about calf predation because... It could have been a problem. I know here in Wyoming, grizzly bears love moose calves. So that could have been part of it too. Yeah, it just I don't know. could have been they, they didn't have any recruitment. And I'll, I'll ask the biologist when I go back here shortly because I am going back. Back to etymology bears. The island is, is some really unique, cool history on that island for sure. The World War II, the grizzly bear hunting just wasn't... A common thing. People didn't travel from Maine, Michigan, Salt Lake, Riverton, Wyoming to go to Kodiak Island in the 40s and 50s to go shoot a grizzly bear. It just wasn't wasn't something we did, right? 
And so here you got Jack O'Connor, some of these other guys, and they start publicizing in the 60s and 70s that they're going to go shoot these monster bears on Kodiak. And that's where we started reading some of this in Outdoor Life. And so they really started uh, targeting, they the, the hunting industry started to promote harvesting these uber-large, you know, and they're, they're a subspecies unto their own of brown bear. They've been isolated for however long. Who knows how long, yeah. From a general grizzly bear. Are, are they a uh, direct rel- relative? Certainly. But a coastal brownie is its own subspecies, and the Kodiak brownie is its own subspecies within, within the coastal brownie. They've just been isolated that long, and they are, you know, you can get a bear in on the, I won't say the interior, but you can get a coastal brownie in Alaska that's that's a big bear. You know, it'll square 10, it'll push 1,000 pounds, but you won't find a 10, 6, and a 12, 1,400-pound, 11, you know, foot. They just, they don't exist other places. Even, you know, the Russia Russian brown, the Coasties, they have some. And they're big, but they're not Kodiak big. And that's, hence the notoriety, right, of a Kodiak bear is its own thing. Like, it's literally its own animal. It's totally, it, it is the biggest, other than, obviously, polar bears, but Have you seen a v- VW bug in your life? Yes, lots of them. Because every time I see one, my son sees it first and slugs me. So, okay. so the, the standard <laughs> VW bug and a, a Kodiak brownie are about the same size, same shape even. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a big animal. It's a huge animal. And they are intimidating to say the least. So back to where we're at. We're we're in the 1970s. Hunters start coming up. Well, they start targeting the big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Just like fishermen, just like elk hunters. Just that's And that actually plays into conservation. We should be targeting those males that have reached the peak that are no longer con- um, contributing to the gene pool. You remove them and you really don't won't see much damage on the population i think it goes back to what we talked about on previous episodes is you get rid of those bears your rate of infanticide on the young goes down so you have better recruitment of young so you have a better population yeah and i don't have the numbers i will i apologize for not doing a little pre-homework but populations on grizzly of grizzly bears on kodiak island have increased steadily since the 70s there are more bears today than there was world war ii when they put cattle on the island and i think we've seen that a lot of places you know even here in wyoming we were down to 150 is what they were thinking at one point and now 1500 we're, yeah we've got a bunch so it does work right and i mean here in wyoming obviously we want to get the hunting hopefully we'll get there there's a lot of work being done there but on Kodiak, they've utilized that as one, it's good for the species, obviously, but also it's really great for the economy there and for the people in that area, because I'm going to venture out and say it probably supports a lot of businesses. You know, you think about the people that are taking flights, getting the food, traveling all that way. Then you have your outfitters and guides who are there. So it supports a lot of people and it's a big, big industry. For sure. And it's Kodiak's not cheap. You know, your, your loaf of bread is six bucks and your gallon of milk is eight bucks. It's not it's so far from the source. right? Oh yeah. And there's a, uh, something like 
four or five thousand active coast guard on the island they do a bunch yep. of cold water training they have huge facilities up there with helicopter ships and it's and they i have a lot of respect for what the coasties do they they got a tough job and they got some cool training and when your ship's sinking and you call the coasties i mean they show up so that's yep. cool so there's this all this history and the island is rich in it and it's a cool place and it's huge the island is absolutely huge and it's it's basically one just huge rock covered in moss mm-hmm. that the trees started growing. And there's the fact that Kodiak has any any vegetation at all is due to the fact that it rains so much and there's a little bit of moss to hold the, because there's really no topsoil. And during certain months of the year, there's a tunnel light, you yes. know, for the most part, other than when it's raining there. <laughs> so there's definitely this uh, dichotomy on the island from winter to summer and you go from feast or famine and the bears are the same way because right now there's zero salmon in those streams, zero. And there won't be any salmon, you know, they woke up three months ago and there won't be any more salmon for about another month or so. You know, the bears are awake, say six months a year. There's maybe two months of salmon, maybe. Uh, so there's four or five months that they got to figure out something else to eat and they got to get enough calories to sleep for four to six months. So we know they're eating grass, dead animals. I'm guessing they're eating blacktail. Yep. And what else is like a main forage on the, on the island? Anything, berries? anything that there's a ton of berries. Yeah, okay. certainly a ton of berries, but there's also a ton of stuff that washes up on the beaches. Ah, so dead, dead whales. I know that happens and dead Crustration, fish and, crabs. Yeah kelp anything so they're gonna bears are pretty much gonna eat it all right if Mm -hmm. if they can chew it and swallow it they're gonna eat it but they're definitely gonna they're gonna high grade and they're going for the snickers bar over over the uh, kale bar right or (laughs) or over over a, a you know pick pick something bland i watched a video and this was when i was a kid it was discovery channel and they they showed that there was this whale and i think it was like a gray whale or humpback but it died and it washed up on the beach of kodiak and then a few days later, there were like 30, 40 bears on that thing. And I mean, they ate it ridiculously fast. They, I remember they were talking on the video. It was insane how quickly they could dispatch a whale carcass. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, they, I mean, that's that's like a huge cache of food for them. They go gorge themselves. They walk over there half a mile. They go sleep until they digest all of it. And then they go back and they gorge. And that's all they do. There is a bear per square mile on Kodiak. That's insane. It's 75, 80 miles wide and 30 miles tall. It's, there's a lot of bears on that island, a lot. So this brings us up to kind of the hunt and where we're at. And bear populations are super healthy, but the demand is high enough that if you harvest a bear, you can only harvest a bear every four regulatory years. So you And that's for residents, right? Residents and non-residents. Okay. So if you're lucky enough to draw the tag, which is... I mean, it's a random choice, pretty low. You're going to be 10, 15, 20 years on drawing a tag. Once you draw a tag, once you harvest a bear, you cannot. Now, theoretically, every four years you could harvest a bear on Kodiak. But if you could draw the if, tag. <laughs> if you can draw the tag. And they do that for a reason, is they want to maintain what they have. And their biologists are doing a great job, and it's a great place to go. Take a lot of rain gear. <laughs> yeah, you were saying it's a great place to go, but miserable also. It's type two fun, Patrick. Right. It's a Patrick McManus reference for all of you out there. Yes. Very much a type two fun. A little misery. 
misery loves company but without the misery i don't <laughs> think kodiak would be nearly as if it if it was central california and i told you oh yeah you go to this island you're going to be in your shorts every day and it's my ties and it's go out on the beach and oh that and you wander around to the one part of the island and shoot your bear and come home without the suffering it's not as alluring well it's not as much of an adventure either like you're talking about going somewhere super remote with hostile weather Hostile conditions and hostile bears. Hostile locals, hostile <laughs> natives. It's it's everything. Yes. Yeah, so what we did is we have a twenty foot skiff. You were you've been on mm-hmm. it when we were up there fishing last year. The so old I, whaler. The, the old whaler. I convinced Dad <laughs> to take the the boat and the truck over there because his unit was about fifteen miles of open ocean to where we could launch the boat to get to his unit. Oh, cool. We looked at float planing it, but then you're kind of. I've had I've had several air taxi transportations i've been on five float planes and while while i've lived every time i've never enjoyed the experience and that well, fog's a real danger yeah now the float planes are the most reliable believe mm-hmm. it or not boats are are the least reliable on and we went from uh, they sent me some pictures my um, dad and and lance sent me photos of 12 foot seas one day they saw a bear and they ran up there and quickly just beached the boat, ran after the bear. They come back. The tide had gone far enough out that the boat's just sitting 20 feet from the water. It's just sitting there in the mud like it's not going anywhere. Yep. So they had to wait till the next morning when the tide come in to get back out. So we've learned, we learned a ton on this trip, right? And I've said this a lot of times. Anytime you go out in nature, whether you're on a boat, fishing, hiking, hunting, I don't care. If you pay attention, you will learn a tip, a trick on how to be a more successful sportsman if you're paying attention. It was a steep learning curve of being our own transportation service. And we there's a ferry that runs the Alaska Marine Highway. It runs from Seward to Homer to Kodiak, way down to Southeast, Prince Rupert, you know, Prince of Wales. And so there's this huge ship that you can put your truck and your boat on. And they hauled my dad and the truck and the boat over there. And Lance and them went for a week and I flew up and here I was, here was a boat, here was a truck. And the issue was, you know, we're on the south part of the island. The prevailing wind is southwest. So that's the part of the island that's going to get hit the hardest with and it's just open ocean all the way to Japan, <laughs> Patrick. <there's, laughs> we launch that boat and look out there. It's not, it's not Boyson where oh we'll we'll run a half mile across the other side and get in a cove and go fish. Oh right? no! So in a week of of hanging out there with my dad in the boat, I think we saw one other guy on a skiff, one, and we saw one four wheeler t- tootling out the two track somewhere. Other than that, we didn't see anybody. I mean, a float plane here or there. It's it is remote. It is. You capsize a boat, you're probably not coming home. And it's pretty easy to capsize a boat, a 19-foot Boston Whaler in 12-foot rollers. It was, it's big boy water. It's it's a different animal for sure. So the first day we launched the boat, get out there, we've got the crabbing gear and some rods for some halibut stuff. And I was just as excited. I don't have a tag, right? So yeah. I'm just as excited. You're along for the ride. I'm along for the ride and to be back up with the with the spare gun. So we fought the weather for sure. I mean, there was one day, the first day we launched the boat, didn't have, uh, the first day I had my gear, so we had to wait a whole 24 hours, and Alaska Airlines did great. Once they figured out A to B, they had my bag there in like seven hours from from Chicago to Kodiak, which, thank you, Alaska, I I appreciate my bag for sure. Yeah. But that was a a rough start to a, a trip that you're already hesitant about. 
we launched the boat and driving to uh, our accommodations that we had on shore before we just had a teepee to go stay out in. We got two and a half inches of slushy hail in about an hour. So we're driving in through two, three inches of just mush. And I'm looking out the window going, I got to go hike around in this to find a bear. Can, can I just go sit by the wood stove, please? <laughs> so if you really want to do Kodiak the enjoyable way, and one trip that I would recommend everybody do is a late November blacktail rut hunt off a beach on a transportation that has like a 30 or 40 foot liveaboard boat where you can go dry your gear. You can go, you know, have your little stateroom. They cook your dinner and you take a Zodi. You kind of do, you know, it's a mini cruise, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can do expeditions with the Zodi onto a beach, hopefully get your deer. Most of those big boats have a cooler clothes drying room. You know, you can have a shower and you're not sleeping with the bears for sure. But that's not the way we did it. Dad and I took a teepee. We may or may not have forgot the uh, bear fence. So the first couple nights I was, uh, <laughs> when the wind would flap the tent, I'm like, is that a bear over there sniffing the edge of the tent, waking up? <laughs> is that you over there, Dad? Yeah. So we did have bear tracks within about 100 yards of our teepee all the way around. Where I set our teepee, I just wanted to set it out of the vegetation. Just happened to be in the main bear crossroads. So... We learned a lot about bears. We learned a lot about the ocean. We launched that boat, say, day two. Day three, we see it's horrible weather, so we just said we'll we'll go back to our accommodations. And then day four, five, and six, we're going to go overnight with the teepee. So we're using the boat, scouring, just glassing from the boat a lot. I emptied a five-gallon bucket to use as a bait bucket, cut a bunch of halibut bait. While we were out glassing, we are halibut fishing during the perfect tide. Didn't catch any halibut because I couldn't keep... The cod, every time you got down, you had a cod on. You could, They were in there chasing the herring. So it was pretty neat to see that. I mean, we saw whales, Patrick, all over the place. Just yep. probably saw two dozen whales. Chowing down on the herring. They're chowing down on the herring. The birds were there. All the seabirds were there, but the cod had followed the herring in. And so I'm sure the halibut are there. We just couldn't get our bait down through the cod to get to the halibut. So the last day, we caught a dozen cod. I filleted them and brought them home. I gave you some. Yep. It was pretty cool to bring fresh cod home from Alaska. That's, uh, you know, it's it's not walleye, it's not halibut, but it's still not bad. No, it's good stuff. So I emptied that five-gallon bucket out, say, day three. We pulled the boat back out of the water, parked it, went in our cabin with our wood stove, and enjoyed the, uh, we had a whole cabin day because we got 20 inches of rain in a day and it was sideways rain i went out and that five gallon bucket that i'd left in the boat empty 24 hours before it was completely full Jeez, yeah so it was <laughs> we would go out and get wet we had that teepee and wood stove titanium little wood stove and an eight-man teepee we'd go out go glass for the morning for four or five hours and just be soaked just absolute and I've got great gear, but you're still just soaked. So we'd go back, hang it all up. It And I had uh, heard from Lance and my dad, they struggled to get a fire going, really struggled. So I took dry newspaper and a bunch of dry kindling that I'd split, put a Bic lighter and rolled it in a gallon Ziploc bag and put it in the bottom of my pack. Okay, so once we get set up, we're, we couldn't haul wood, right? So we're cutting wet dead alder with just a little handsaw we didn't take a chainsaw but it's 20 foot skiff we only got so much room for so much gear so we're out there we're set up and it's a in calm seas it's about an hour boat ride from where we launched to where his unit is in non-calm seas it's four hour and it's 
every every wave you're you're determining are we going to turn and try and find shore we turn and go back we had a we had a a couple mile protected bay to get out in the ocean and kind of get a feel for hey what's the ocean going to do but you had to definitely you know a bigger boat you just go through it and don't care that boat you take the wrong roller over the bow and it's 47 degree water and you're toast you're you're done so we definitely uh the boat was was it as intimidating as the bears for sure the ocean was i mean it's it was i had my personal locator beacon clipped to me and i wore my life jacket and i i mean you and i go fishing on boys and i'm not gonna wear a life jacket i may drown someday but if it's if it's 75 degrees out and the water's 55 degrees and but we'll have a life jacket with us well I, right. I will definitely have a life jacket <laughs> in the boat yeah. but while we're fishing when i stepped in that boat i had my life jacket on buckled up and ready to go and dad was a little hesitant i'm like all right i'm driving that way if you kill your grandkids dad you know i'm the one that did it not you so <laughs> he's over there just yelling at me to slow down half the time. I'm like, I want to get off this water as quick as I can. Well, you, you've been on that boat with me when it got a little rough, and it was it was way rougher than when you and I were in mm-hmm. it, for sure. Climbing up a swell, backing off the throttle, crashing down, climbing up a swell again. As you're talking, I'm thinking, nope. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, pretty wild. And the, the TP was, you know, back to just to get a fire going. The three days we were in there, we had five fires, right? One in the morning, one in the evening. For the most part, it took about an hour to get a sustainable fire going. I would pull that newspaper out of the Ziploc bag and go to light it when we shaved a bunch of kindling off that dry kindling. And the paper was wet enough sometimes it would go out while I was trying to put it in the stove. And it's just, you got 90 some percent humidity at 45 degrees. I mean, a real feel was 34, 36, but the it's actual temperature. chilling cold. Um, I was sitting there glassing a couple times with all my stuff on and just chattering my teeth and shaking. And I'd, I'd stand up, do some burpees and sit out and glass for a while. And, you know, because you'd be hiking uphill and you'd, we'd have to actively do sweat management. So here's a tip and a trick. If you guys are going to be hunting in those kind of conditions, that climate, you're going to want to take layers that you can take on and off quickly and easily. Because if you're too layered up, you're you're going to sweat, and you're going to sweat regardless. But you want to have a couple dry layers that when you get to a glassing point, we're only climbing about a mile from our teepee up 500 feet in elevation just to get on this little knoll that was there to glass everything around us 360. And I've got some great pictures and videos that we'll put up some point in time. So it was awesome to get there, and you get there, you pull your puffy coat out of your backpack take your rain coat off maybe air it out if it's not raining but it was raining so i just quickly put a dry insulated puffy jacket on over that you sit down and glass until your your face and your fingers can't take it anymore and then i'd say dad let's go back to that teepee and it'd take a couple hours of that stove going to dry clothes out just because it was it was that wet for sure but the teepee is definitely i took the hilleberg on the last hunt without a stove and we went in august to try and go with some better weather for the goat hunt we had two days of 16 of better weather so that's why i say it's cruel is it's a dad resorted back to just his grunion's pvc raincoat because it works yep the ultralight stuff is great those old things they work great it works and he Mm -hmm. was hunting in it and it worked you may not look pretty 
but it'll get the job done, right? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. When you when we're in an open skiff going with spray coming oh, over the front man. of the boat, there's there's nothing better than putting those on. There's a reason that crabbers and salmon fishermen wear that stuff. I mean, yes. it keeps them dry, dry and warm, warm-ish. at least warmish. I wouldn't say warm. And there's yeah. no there's no there's no true dry or no true warm on Kodiak. But we got to where we were comfortable, and without that wood stove, day one we would have pulled the plug, hands yep. down. Oh, so yeah. little titanium stove, some way to get a fire going, some practice in getting fire going in wet conditions. Not here in Wyoming in August when a spark off a, a big lighter, not the flame, just a spark will get a fire going here. Right? You hear all the time of somebody going out and practicing shooting and their hot brass catch on fire. Well, there, no, we were, we were resorting to, we didn't quite resort to gasoline, but we were getting close to using gasoline to try and get a fire going. So fire starter is a great thing. We just, we used a little bit of kindling, took some patience and... Once you got enough coals going, it, the issue wasn't getting a flame. The issue was all the alder that we were burning was soaking wet. So you had to, yeah. we just stacked wood on top of the wood stove just and just let it sit there until it started to smolder. And then we'd pull that piece off. And so we were having to pre-dry enough wood to get enough coals to, so you're, you're spending a lot of energy, time, calories, just trying to get that stove going. So what did I take for food? Typical backpacking food, two to 3,000 calories a day. I'm partial to the peak refuel. Yeah, but there's it's the better tasting, in my opinion, on most of their stuff. From my experience, like Mountain House is good, too. It just depends on which ones you get. I have my favorites, and I think everybody does. MREs, I've had those. They're too heavy for what yeah. they are. There's Heather's Choice, there's Peak Refuel, there's Backpack Repancher, there's a whole bunch of them. But I'm going to give you a tip trick recipe right here. And Let's do it. Dad came up with this one and it's amazing. He takes Top Ramen and throws the seasoning packet away. He takes your ragu tomato sauce, puts that on tinfoil sheet and dehydrates it. So now you have like this fruit leather, mm-hmm. rips that off the aluminum and crinkles it up and puts it in the bag with the Top Ramen. And he bought some sealable aluminum, you know, almost like freeze-dry bags. He bought some heavier-duty on-Amazon food bags. And then he takes a pound of burger, fries it, and then puts it in the food dehydrator. A little salt and pepper. I, you would think it's homemade spaghetti. I bet it was good. It's about a buck a meal. Yeah, it's a good deal. Now, it's not going to last 25 years like the Mountain House, right? But I bet you it keeps for four, five, six months. I don't know exactly how long that burger is going to keep in that pouch. He threw a couple oxygen absorbers in there, threw all that in there. Right. It was a pretty dang good spaghetti. And, you know, it's it's not ultra processed. It's hamburger, tomato sauce with, are the noodles the greatest? No, but they're not. Realistically, they hydrate good with hot water. The meat's already cooked, so you just got to rehydrate it, warm it. And it's tomato sauce, right? And it's your carbs and protein to get up and go do a hunt the next day. So when you start looking at, I'm going to be in the field 40, 50, 60 nights times $10 a meal, that's $6,000 I'm giving to Mountain House or, or Peak Refuel and use that stuff. It's great stuff, especially you're going four or five nights. But dad made that for Kodiak and way back in the day, dad used to dehydrate. He'd buy just mixed vegetables, mixed frozen vegetables from the store, put it in the dehydrator. And I would throw those in top of any Mountain House. Now you got extra veggies in your whatever dinner you're making and it's it's good to go so yeah seth our blog writer he has one that i picked up from him that i do and that's you get the mountain house or peak refill beef stroganoff then you buy a package of those idahoan potatoes you know and you 
you let it cook and do its thing, and then you add some of that potato to it, and it is amazing, especially the garlic and butter. It's like shepherd's pie. Oh, it's delicious. So yeah. on the doll sheep video, I actually packed butter, mm-hmm. cut a stick of butter into five days, and on top of the Idaho potatoes, I'd throw the butter. It's so. worth it. Oh, so, so worth it. <laughs> and so butter's going to keep non-refrigerated for oh. long enough. And when you're sheep hunting, it's cool enough at night. Yeah, I'm not worried about I it. I packed the butter into the winds this last year for our mushrooms and for our brookies, and it was totally worth it. It's heavy. It's heavy, but it's hey, heavy. I can carry a stick of butter. Uh, I'll, <laughs> to, to have on brookies or to have on your potatoes, it, it's oh, totally man. worth it. And so, with those mushrooms that we harvested, yeah, it was awesome. So tell me a little bit more about how it ended up. How, how did the hunt end up? How did things wrap up for you guys? How did you feel about the trip? So we had, and there's pictures of the track, a bear. We're camped 200 yards off the beach. We get up and there's sandy tracks in the beach and it's, you know, I never took a tape measure, but eight and a half inches across the pad. I've got my hand next to it in the mud and we followed that bear, walked 200 yards away from our tent in the dark. We we went in the tent at 11 o'clock at night. We were out about 6 a.m., got light at 5.15. So that bear was most likely on the beach in the dark in front of us. There was another bear on the other side of us 200 yards that had walked through. We didn't see either one of them. By the tracks, I'm pretty sure it was a sow. Well, the bear that was on the beach got the wind of that sow that was, one bear was south of us, one bear was north of us while we were laying there in the tent. That bear made a 180 and started following that sow, and they walked all the way up the little two-track that we were camped next to, and we followed their tracks that we'd walked the night down before. And, you know, I'm making an indentation about a quarter inch, they're they're going an inch deep in this muddy soil. It's just heavy, heavy animals. So those two bears went in the brush, and we, we glassed that the better part of that fourth or fifth day. Day six, the weather we had that was a day or two old said that Sunday we were going to have really big seas again. So we opted to Saturday was going to be our last day. I was flying out Monday anyways. I didn't want to try and be that, that remote trying to get out. So dad and I both opted to leave that Saturday. We got up before daylight because I figured out what these bears are doing finally. Because we've been climbing that glassing knob. We've done it four times and glass all day and really not seen a whole lot of bear activity, but seen bear tracks. And the Weather was just not conducive. We were getting fogged in, rained in, getting cold enough. We had to keep going back to get warmed up. So, no, we were not sitting for 12 hours at a sit. We were up there for a good four to six hours, and then we'd be, you know, it was an hour climb up there. So we'd go climb down, get warmed up, and then go do an evening sit somewhere. So we did that for a couple days, figured out what the bears are doing, found the bears. We're running by our tent on the beach, running by the creeks. And so that last morning I said, all right. We are going to watch this beach until the last moment of light, and we are going to get up before light and be standing here when this beach gets light, and we're going to catch a bear, and then we'll go, you know, watch the beach for the first hour or two, and then we're going to get in the boat, and we're going to cruise up and down the shore and see if we can catch another bear on a beach somewhere, because we got tons of miles of shore we can go to, and we've got the boat sitting there. So lo and behold, 4.30, I'm up, and it's it's rough to go to bed at 11 and get up at 4.30. It just is but when you're only going to have to hike 100 yards, there's an advantage. So I got up, glassed for about a half hour, went back in, stoked the fire, made breakfast, and uh, one more food hack because I like this one. <laughs> Mountain House scrambled egg breakfast, their breakfast scramble. Take biltong. I've got Boyke's biltong. I sprinkle it in the top. It rehydrates almost like bacon. So it's almost like bacon. If you close your eyes, you can pretend it's bacon and eggs, and it's good protein. So there's two... Two upgrades for the old freeze drive for sure. Anyways, 
I'm glassing the beach. We're we're starting to store our gear. I go back, glass for another half hour, go back, warm up, and it's it's misty, foggy in and out, but it's goes from five hundred yard to a mile visibility back to eight hundred yard. All of a sudden at the far end of our beach, I spot a bear at seven thirty in the morning. And we've got we're on this big crescent shaped beach like a crescent shaped moon. Winds in our face, everything's favorable. I'm super stoked. Now I can tell it's seven and a half, eight foot. It's a it's not a big old adult boar, but it's a boar. I can tell it's just a, a younger boar, but not a not a it's not a cub. It's a it's an adult. He's just not a he's a seven or eight footer, not a ten footer. Last day, last morning, bear's good enough for dad or I. We're happy. We go stalking in there and the wind switches. And I knew the wind switched, so I made a judgment call, and right, wrong, or indifferent, there wasn't the terrain to go get in the boat, go around the bear, and come from the other side. There just wasn't. If we would have had a third person, maybe, but the bear was at the tip of that crescent moon right against some cliffs. So I decided, I said, you know what, this bear, his escape route is across this big river delta that we're on in knee-high grass. It's 800 yards. He's not going to just run full tilt. He's going to run the first little bit, then he's going to go to a speed walk, and he's going to walk up into that. He's got to go to those brush, right? He's going to. I told Dad we were about 300 yards away, and there's a creek that completely blocked our access. We had to make a choice to go up on the high bank or stay down on the beach on the water. I knew if we stayed on the beach where we were at, that bear was going to smell us. He's just around the kind of the point from where we're at, so we can only see his hump. And so I said to Dad, I'm like, let's get up on the high side so we can see his escape route. Let's let him get our wind, but he's going to come by us 100 yards to the east or west. I let him get our wind. He goes straight up in the cliffs. Oh, and, man. And I watched him go into the alders, and we sat under it for about two hours. He's 100 yards in front of us in the, in the 100 to 150 in this patch of alders that's not but an acre. I didn't dare go in it without a third guy, right? I would have gone up there and pushed that bear out if somebody could have been there with dad to get him on target on the bear and at least maybe keep the bear off me, right? But just leaving dad solo and me going up there solo, I wasn't comfortable with it. So we sat there. In hindsight, I should have predator called, try and get that bear to come towards the beach towards us, never let him get our wind. If we would have had another day, I would have just sat down and waited. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I was fairly confident that that bear was going to come past us and he didn't and so we uh we used our last day to go fishing and hanging out and enjoyed it and the weather that we were supposed to get that was supposed to be 12 foot seas turned into an hour of wind and it went away and so we learned that you got to pay attention to the weather right we learned how to stalk those bears differently than i've done I'm by no means an expert but you know to dad's credit he was on four bears in a 10-day hunt on kodiak that's pretty cool. And so, you got to go do something that a lot of people would love to do. The scenery is beautiful. The whales were, we had one of the whales do the classic picture dive 200 yards from the boat. I didn't get the phone out in time to video it. Why? Because it's raining and my phone is buried <laughs> deep in my jacket. But to have the Kodiak Island backdrop and to have that, you know, classic whale tail diving down was, was a, a memory I'll never forget to be there with my dad. Yeah. Was it easy? No, it was not easy. Mentally, physically, tougher than the Cape Buffalo hunt, tougher than the doll sheep hunt, as tough as the goat goat hunt just because the weather, the terrain. And I've learned that what we're going to do, I'm going to go sit on that beach next year, guys. I will be sitting there with a book 
in, in a little <laughs> glassing shelter under a tarp, dug in with my butt in the sand with my bow and arrow. I'm going to see if Joe will go with us to film it, and Dad and I will be there, and we're going to see if he can get his with a rifle, and I'm going to get one with a bow, or I'm going to come home without one. But it can be done. Certainly, I, I have faith that it can be done. Well, it sounds like an awesome adventure and a cool trip, and I'm glad you made it back all right. It's pretty neat. Until the next one, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to stay dry or warmer. Definitely, if, you, if you're intrigued in Kodiak, I would start with just a fishing trip. Just take a... Yep. Take and do one of those live aboard, you know, four day, three day fishing trips. Go out to a lodge if you want to do the streams. The bears are not, oh, how do I put this? Our bears here are very territorial of their space. Those bears are much more accustomed to having other bears within their personal zone. And they just, can guys get mauled and attacked? Sure. But it's on Kodiak with those bears. It's just not a, a common thing like it is here in Wyoming with our bears. We just don't have, and I, it boils down to one thing, Patrick. Those bears are eating fish. There is enough fish in the river in the falls that they're still a bear, right? You mm -hmm. need to respect them 100%, and you still could yep. get in trouble. However, they have a personality that they know without a doubt that there's food here and they're top dog, and they just, I, you still got to be careful, but I'm much less terrified of those bears than I am a 500-pound grizzly here in the winds that's on a moose kill or a deer kill or an elk gut pile that I didn't know was there because we have somebody, you know, we have multiple people here a year that are attacked, mauled, or even killed mm -hmm. in Wyoming, and Kodiak just doesn't have that reputation. Now, has it happened? Yes. Will it happen again? Yes. Could it happen? Sure. But those bears, I would say their personal space zone is about 100 yards when the salmon are in the stream. They'll let you get within about 100 yards away and you yell at them like, oh, you know, as long as they've got caloric intake that they're happy with, bring sows, cubs, you know, maybe if they're on a cow kill or they're on a winter kill of some kind, say they found a Sitka blacktail carcass, you, you may want to steer clear some of that. But for the most part, those bears, are they're just, I would equate it to this way. Think about the attitude of a big draft horse versus a quarter horse or, or a race horse, right? The quarter horse is a little more flighty, a little more unpredictable. Big draft horse, you know, they, you, you watch videos of little kids and dogs run between their legs and they're trained to just kind of be desensitized to all of it. They're, they call them gentle giants for a reason, right? These bears, for whatever reason... You got to be conscious, you know, you got to be still bear aware of your food and presence. It's still a bear. I'm not trying to articulate here that, oh, you can go pet these things. Definitely not. Our bears here have about a personal zone of 300 yards. Those are about 100 yards. You can, mm -hmm. that, that's not always true. You get, in, you get food or babies involved that can be different. But what I've seen having lived in Alaska with those bears, the interior grizzlies are much meaner much nastier, much more defensive any food they get. The coastal brownies, I, I can remember the Russian River. I was walking up the river, down the river as a sow with two cubs at about 100 yards. I said, hey, bear, she walked to the other side of the river. And her and her cubs walked past me at about 30 yards and kept fishing. That is the Russian River, which has hundreds of fishermen, and those bears are very habituated to people being there. So I still have bear spray. I still pack the 10 mm. I would pay attention to your P's and Q's. I had trouble sleeping without the bear fence. The bear fence will be going around the teepee next time. <laughs> that's a good call. Well, thanks for coming and sharing the story about the Kodiak. I think that's pretty cool because it's an iconic animal that all of us know about. So that's pretty neat to hear your story. Until you see the, the footprint and you're in the woods where they're actually roaming, it's, I mean, it's a dream of mine to go do it and get it done. There's a picture of me with one of the bears 
life-size mounted and until you actually lay your eyes on and i've i've seen four of them in person and they are they are tanks they yep. they're awe-inspiring you got to go see these bears for sure well you'll have to send the picture for the show notes so people can look and see what you're talking about but it'll be fun to come back and talk about more of our adventures here soon but that's a pretty big deal getting to go to kodiak certainly and like i mentioned earlier there's gonna be some footage of bears on salmon from the goat trip and you can kind of kind of get an idea of the the hell that kodiak is in the fall versus it's actually kind of pleasant in the spring other than the weather it's kodiak (laughs) yep awesome well again guys go to our website check out all of our other shows we've got lots of shows on bears we've got shows on just about anything that you want so go check it out ragcastoutdoors.com and We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors. Mm